Hey everyone, and welcome back to the First Act Podcast. Today's episode features Pascal Pilon, serial tech entrepreneur and CEO of the disruptive music mixing and mastering technology, Lander. Listen in as he walks us through his career, what it takes to build multiple sustainable businesses from the ground up, and his perspective on the future of the music business, right here, right now, on the First Act Podcast. And now, hosted by Harry G, this is your one-stop shop for hot talk straight from the top. Whether you're trying to build a job in pop, rock, or any other artsy schlock, here's your top dog with info that can't be bought, it's gotta be sought. So sit back, crack a six-pack, cause we're about to chit-chat and rip facts. It's the First Act Podcast. Pascal, how are you? I'm good. Really good. Yourself? I'm great. I'm doing great. I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today. We do sometimes talk about people that are in music and tech. We do focus a lot on people's paths in entertainment, but I'm particularly excited to talk about you today because you're also from Montreal, like me, and you actually have a very tech background before you entered the music industry. Yeah, that's right. Well, I've been, uh, I've always been a very big uh, consumer of music. I was a paper boy at age eight and I was, uh, I, I was working every morning listening to an album, a full cassette as I was doing my run. And uh, so I have always had a soundtrack to my life. <laughs> and so, 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 that, so w- w- what albums were you listening to back then? Uh, in those days, I started with the Beatles when I was a kid, very, very small, at John Cougar Mellencamp, uh, you know, the little classics of the time. And then I moved into heavy metal. I listened to a lot of heavy metal, like Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, uh, Rat, and some other bands like that. And at some point, uh, I'd say college brought me more into uh, progressive music of the day. So from Depeche Mode to... Uh, you know, to PIL and things like those, you know, because uh, everything that's punk is a little bit like an offshoot from heavy metal. And then uh, as I was finishing college, I was more into uh, Pink Floyd and stuff like that. And then funny enough, I moved back and I became an intense and passionate fan of Rolling Stones. For maybe a better part of two years, I listened pretty much only to, uh, to the Rolling Stones. My life has always been a succession of uh, discoveries like those uh, because it's been such a big part of my life. As soon as I got a chance from a professional side of things to uh, combine technology with music, I saw that as like uh, an amazing opportunity to uh, combine those two passions. And uh, here I am today, uh, about eight years from uh, founding Lander. So I'm really excited to hear more about your path. Why don't we jump to, you know, you said that at around eight years old. You had a paper route. Were you always working from the age of eight up until now? Yeah, always. So what were some of your uh, jobs like? Oh, man, everything and nothing. I, uh, in fact, before I was eight, age eight, my father, uh, because he wanted us to not become uh, too, too used to just being like having, having it easy, was giving us incentives to work. So if I would do the lawn, I would be earning a dollar, maybe $2 and stuff like that. So I've always earned a little bit of money. And, uh, and then the paper was a big deal for me. But then when I was uh, 13 years old, I'm st- I was started to, uh, starting to do jobs for the neighbors. At age uh, 15, I started working at Arve's. 
Uh, at age 16, I started working for a car dealership in the parts uh, department on a part-time basis. And then uh, I was lucky enough to get a job at uh, the city of Laval to, to work on, you know, stuff outdoors as a variety, variety of work, but typically maintenance of parks and stuff like that. And in the days, it was pretty lucrative. And then when I finished school, I, uh, I managed to just start working in computer engineering, software development. So are you from Laval or are you from Montreal? I was originally born and raised in uh, Montreal till age five. And then uh, my parent moved to Laval and I kept at going at school in Montreal. So I've, I've basically, I've never done much in Laval, but sleep there. And then as soon as I had the option to move away, I moved away. I am absolutely not a suburb type of guy. So uh, I like to be close to, either very close to the city and restaurants and, uh, you know, where the action is happening and where I can walk to, to basically meet and greet others. Or, uh, you know, be, be in a cottage next, next to the woods, which is totally the opposite. But the in-betweens, I'm not so keen about. Okay. And so you're mentioning that after college, you started working in computer engineering. Is that what you studied? Yeah. Yeah, I studied in uh, computer engineering and, uh, and I loved it. It was, uh, it was a big deal. In fact, when I started, uh, I went to Polytechnical School in Montreal, an engineering school. And the first year I did was in civil engineering. And I did that because I was a little bit lazy at the time. And uh, it was my understanding that this was the easiest one. But uh, I really disliked it. And I was really bored. So it was a really difficult year. So then I moved. Uh, I shifted to, 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 to software engineering just because one of my good friends was telling me how much he liked it. And I felt he was the most enthused about what he was doing of all the friends I was studying with. So I gave it a shot. And you know what? I loved it. And it was very practical as well. We could do like a lot of like uh, programming this, programming that, but it was a lot, a lot of applied uh, homeworks as opposed to just studying thing by, things by art. So, so I did that and I, and I really loved it. And, and right from that moment, I started to be driven by, by work and what you can build with this. And I realized over the years from there that uh, I'm a builder. I love to take things and just give them a shape and then try to give them a, a meaning and use, uh, use technology as uh, basically a way to understand uh, society and evolution and what can be done from things. So it's, uh, I find it to be a very powerful knowledge to understand how you can leverage technology to achieve and become a participant in pretty much every industry. And I applied that to music, which is great. So before, like, I'm excited to jump into the music part of it, but I, but I want to know how you got there. You know, like, it's, it's amazing that you were able to say, okay, you know what, I, I studied civil engineering, it was boring, plat, and I was not into it. And then you switch over into software. And so now I guess every job that you that you'd had after school was in software. Yeah. Yeah. So the first job that I kept for less than a year was uh, to build uh, basically software that was controlling machinery in sawmills. And, uh, you know, I didn't know better, so I did that. But then I had an opportunity to, to take a job at uh, an air traffic control simulation company that was basically simulating uh, and training air traffic controllers by uh, recreating uh, the visuals 
and uh, the, basically the data that they're exposed to when they actually work in an airport. And I really like that. So I did that for a few years, but then the company went bankrupt. And then I moved to a consulting firm that was uh, offering their services to help companies like Martel and other telecom companies to build their uh, telecom software. And I did that for maybe a year. And then I moved myself into a project management position for the same company mm-hmm. as I was uh, starting to do my MBA. And then I realized that I, I realized I had somewhat of a talent to lead people and to organize and structure things. That's how I discovered that. And from my MBA that just started at HEC Montreal back then, after maybe four years of working on the market, on the job market, I, I was doing that part-time. And then I realized that I might be even better in business than I thought I was in computer engineering. And then the combination of the two became something I applied. So right after that, in 99, I started my first company and it was inspired by the company I was at, not directly into what I was doing, but someone into the company I was working at was leading a group that was building software to automate the testing of electronic devices. It's a, it's a little bit of a niche thing, but I saw that as a growing segment. It was becoming more and more basically a software-defined type of a quality control system as opposed to the old world of manual testing of these electronic products. So I did that, and then I became a real entrepreneur. And I, was, uh, I had a good flair because the market was great. So within the first year, we moved to 16 people and then 35 people. And then, boom, there was the telecom crash. So most of our customers were having issues paying us. So we reduced back staff to 18 people. And then every year that followed, we doubled and we grew, we grew, we grew, and we adapted and we we went into other markets. And then I started discovering the power of buying businesses to accelerate growth. So uh, the company was called Averna. It still exists today. In fact, it, it was sold last week and changed then once again. But uh, So I built that company to about 300 people. Uh, and then back in 2012, there was some disagreements within the shareholder group. And uh, basically, I wanted to keep on investing aggressively where most other shareholders wanted to just like optimize the business for immediate profitability. So we came to an agreement that I would be selling my shares. So back in 2013, here I was free as a, free as a bird. So I started investing into other businesses. I started my own small venture fund called YUL Ventures, in which there's an, uh, about a dozen uh, Montreal entrepreneurs and professionals who are investors of. And as I was looking to invest, I, I was in discussions with uh, an existing acceleration fund called Tandem, Tandem uh, Launch. And uh, one of the projects and technology they were trying to migrate from the UK university to Montreal to launch a business was, uh, was a project called Mixed Genius. And the founder of the technology, the, the research of the technology had moved from the UK to Montreal and was on the lookout to be able to start that business. So I... I studied the business and I ended up starting uh, that new company with, uh, with that person, which is called Stuart Svensbridge, and another person called Justin Evans, another, uh, another very strong technology marketer. So the three of us started the company back in 2013 uh, using the IP that was built and invested in by that UK university. And so- that was the beginning of Lander because McGenius was the first thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the technology was doing two things. It was doing automatic mixing of tracks within a song. And it was also doing the final stage, which is mastering. 
And as I was trying to, as we were developing the platform and I was talking to, to potential to musicians, I discovered how much they did not want us to interfere with their creative process. They wanted us, but they were fine for us to automate the mastering stage because that was something they were not used to do anyway and that they relied on other people to do most of the time. So we just focused on that final stage of music post-production, which is called mastering. And, uh, and because we made uh, that product reduce the cost of being able to master a song by a factor of like 10, and it was immediate, you did not have to wait for sound engineers to send you back the work after a few days. And also because you could listen to 30 seconds of the final result before even committing to buying it, uh, it was also reducing a lot of the risk for the, the musicians who were consumer of that. And that became pretty popular. So we just over the years nurtured the market and gradually moved from you know, a few hundreds of users to a few thousands, to a few tens of thousands, to a few millions. And now we're at 4 million registered users. Wow. This isn't even your first company that you were able to build from nothing. You had a lot of success in the past. You said the company's name was Averna. Yeah, Averna, yeah. Right. And so you saw, you saw that there was a growing market in automating the testing of electronic products. Yeah, in a way that was using software. So it was basically software defined. So it was automation of tests where people would typically do that manually. So I saw that. And there was a company that was leading the way, a company called Nate, uh, National Instruments. It yeah. was basically the kind of a, an industrial PC company that invented a language called LabVIEW. And I saw how much electronic, uh, people that were designing electronic products were uh, excited and appealed by this uh, LabVIEW programming language. So I figured that if we were to build the biggest team of experts in that area, uh, in that, and, and considering that this expertise was, uh, was very uh, limitedly available on the market, that we would find a great demand for our services. And that's what we did. So you talk about building a team. And at this stage, you're probably what? You're not even 30 years old when you started Averna. Yeah, I was 28. Yeah, okay. So you're my age at that point. That's crazy. Yeah. So you start Averna. Yeah. And how did you assemble this team? How did you know who to go to? Who was the who who are the experts? Like there was no LinkedIn at the time to find the best people. So you have to use your immediate network of people. So the people I studied with, the people I worked with in the past and so forth. And uh, it's a good question. It's a good question. I'm trying to remind myself, how did I do to recruit people. But there was monsters, yeah, yeah. There were, st there were still, the internet was active like back in 99. So uh, you could still post jobs on monster.com and there was job boom and a number of sites like those. So the equivalent of LinkedIn was there. It was not as easy to, uh, to identify people that could be of interest. You had to just post openings and receive resumes. But, uh, but we really had nice offices and, uh, and we were good at pitching people and so forth. So we managed to recruit a lot of people and create a very positive environment. So it's, uh, no, and, and today it's still a fantastic business. I mean, uh, uh, the people who followed through from, uh, from uh, after me, uh, the CEO is still there. And he, uh, they bought a number of European companies and U.S. companies and it keeps on flourishing. So it's, a, it's, a, it's still a Montreal-based power-ups that uh, people don't know much about, but uh, it's still there and significant. So when you first started it, you know, to attract all this talent, you must have had to secure contracts so that 
you, when you're building out your team, people will actually have work to do, but you'll also be able to yeah. pay them. It's like a weird yeah. balance, right? It's tough. It's a, yeah, yeah. So that's the, that's the difficulty of bootstrap companies, right? The strength of this was me because uh, one of my first co-founder in the business was the person who knew how to sell those type of customers back then. So when I joined, I developed the first uh, system. And then as we got more contracts, we hired at the same time. So the key was to continuously try to hire new employees. And so that you time it with the moment that you get a contract and then boom, the person comes in three weeks later, jumps into the project. So I kind of served as the, as the ability to start projects and give customers the impression that, that there's a, there was an ability to deliver. And we did that. So it's, it was a little bit uh, stretching ourselves thin at the beginning, but, uh, but it worked pretty well because those systems people, they don't expect them to, de- to be delivered within a few weeks, right? It's months of development. So it's kind of somewhat easy to get customers to accept that the project would start only in a few weeks. And then at the beginning, it's only me. And then we basically compensated for the lack of staff. And, and when customers ask to visit your office first, well, oftentimes it, that's where the, you don't get those contracts typically, but typically people like when you visit them, they don't really want to spend the time to come and visit you. So, uh, and because we, we had that experience of working for a bigger firm, uh, the look and feel of, of my partner and I, when we went to sell uh, systems and our services looked very professional and polished. They didn't know necessarily how many people were there in the company. Some people would ask, and we would, be, we would tell them, but oftentimes people don't even ask. I guess you were like the lead engineer at the beginning. And then as the team would grow, you would actually take it more of a step back. And then you would just kind of focus on the sales. And then I guess eventually you could take a full step back and you're really just managing the whole operation. Yeah, yeah that's right. But Harrison, you got to remember one thing. And uh, I learned that very early in my career from uh, reading a book by Jack Welch, the former GE CEO. You always have to overlap your expertise with the people that report to you to a certain extent, because otherwise you delegate blindly. So, you know, you have to delegate, but you have to verify a little bit. So uh, even today, even at Lander, I remain technical, not technical to the extent where I would code the actual piece of software. In fact, I would not even remember how to do it. But from an architecture standpoint and technical building blocks, I'm still very actively participating in those discussions. So, um, so in fact, my biggest mistakes I did early in my career was to delegate without verifying. Because then you could, you know, oftentimes you hire new employees and you don't know them so well. So if they're not very efficient or if they don't really follow what's expected by the customers, oftentimes the time they spend is a waste and you need to start over again. So that happened a few times. So if you want to prevent that, you need to learn how to, uh, to verify at a certain frequency so that you don't micromanage, but at the same time, you keep people aligned with the angle. That's some really great advice. So I wanted to you know, grill you on some more questions about Lander. You came up with the idea, you said it started off as a mixed genius, and then it evolved into Lander. When you were going out and I'm trying to understand what, what your potential clients would even want. What were some of the questions that you would ask them? And how did you know who exactly to talk to? 
like at what size were they were they independent record producers were they engineers in a studio that were a little bit more established like who did, how did you know who to go to hmm. those are good questions so um first of all first of all remember that i started this one from a technology transfer so i could actually listen to a, a prototype of the the actual product before launching the business so i had a very good idea of what the product could do. So as we were, so I mean, we started the company, I wanted our R&D team to be able to reproduce the performance of the prototype, but to, to make it work consistently so that the brand of the company would be built. You didn't want to do something randomly so that one person says, wow, it works great. The next one says it, it sucks. So it's important to, to develop consistency so that people can become their best ambassadors to grow the, the popularity of the service. <clears throat> so that's what, what, that was one. But then uh, even before starting this, I, I spoke to musicians and people who were music enthusiasts, right? I told them about this. I showed them the demo. I got a few people saying, wow, this is very cool. Some others said, I really don't like that. And then I understood how, how people related to that. Um, because of the average cost of what we would sell, for example, when you sell, uh, when we sell a mastered song, uh, it's ten dollars. So it's not something that you sell through salespeople, right? It's a product. It's a cloud-based service. So the real deal is, how do you get people to take a look at uh, at your website and then consider what you do? So we basically look to get some coverage from the press, from trade magazines, and so forth. And, uh, and we managed to, we, we had real ventures to invest with us when we started. So I used basically the know-how of, uh, of uh, the partners at Real Venture to try to get some early visibility. And then based on that early visibility, you get a certain word of mouth. And then we started spending money on Facebook ads and Google ads and so forth. We also started to create a blog that blog, you know, basically generating content about elements of music creation is, uh, is one of the things that really enabled us to grow. And we nurtured that. Today, we have a million visitors a month on that blog. So it's, it's a pretty popular blog. And we took a chance. So as people were complaining about weaknesses of the product and people were churning because they didn't like it and other people would say, wow, this is fantastic. Well, we tried to understand what were the, the most... Uh, important pieces of feedback in there. And then we apply that back to the product to try to improve it. And that's the message here. It's, you gotta be scrappy to succeed in business. You do need to jump and take a chance and then open your eyes and open your ears and try to understand what could be improved. And we started the company back in 2013. We went to market in March, 2014 with our beta version of the site. And that's what we've been doing ever since. Continuous listening and improvement of what we do in every, every aspect of the company. It's just that. You got to start from a, from a starting point and just like try to improve things. We have to realize as, uh, as uh, for any entrepreneur that, uh, that has the ambition to build something, oftentimes the cost of failure on a day-to-day -day basis has to do with rejection it's not really failure like you're, you're gonna lose your business, right? So you have to accept rejection so that you can learn from it and you get to be seeking it because that's what's in the way of being successful. 
And that's what the last natural play, piece of being an entrepreneur. It's really about hunting for friction, understanding what's a problem, what's a problem. Because the product that we use as consumers are those products that are seamless to use, right? And right. that really delivers the value that we're seeking without the interference of annoying factors that could make you not want to go back to use it. Whatever you do, it's all about complicity, right? So, so whatever your products, the services that you sell, it's all a relationship with others. And the complicity is to convey what people, uh, what your intention, your culture, your, your mindset, but bended and, and flexibly shaped to meet other people's expectation. And the intersection of your expectation and theirs is sustainable business or sustainable friendship. It's really just the same. I want to talk about money because, you know, Averna, it seems like you, you might not have needed money at the start. Well, everyone needs money, but you might not have actually like needed it, needed it, right? You could have gotten a contract and then done, and done the work and been paid at the same time. Did you raise money for Averna? I did much later on because I did a few acquisitions, but uh, I didn't raise money for the, the first five years. And, uh, but it's a service organization, right? Right. So you don't need to raise money when you start a service business, as long as you can deliver the services yourself to start the process. And now with Lander though, because there, it sounds like there was a lot of upfront costs because you probably had to hire engineers because you're using like a lot of big data, machine learning, artificial intelligence, right? You bet. It's been very expensive and it remains very expensive. Because these uh, engineers aren't cheap. You know, you get what you pay for. Yeah, yeah we have 125 people now. So it's, uh, it's huge in terms of costs. And the company is still losing money today. I mean, you, you invest because the, the, the company is growing and our ambition is growing as well. So we have a number of backers, including uh, nowadays we've got Warner Music, Sony, and a number of other parties. But the, the early backers like Real Ventures and my own personal fund uh, we took the risk and uh, we, and oftentimes it fails, you know? So it's, it's it, those, those type of technology-based businesses, they do require capital and you need to find early believers. So you got to believe in it yourself and you also need to be very convincing. So it's, you know, it's, there's a classic in technology entrepreneurship where you need to build a pitch deck that encompasses what you need to do to be successful and who do you sell to and who are your competitors. And if you win, what's the size of the market so that people can understand why it's worthy for them to take that risk because they see the upside. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a framework that, that's more and more documented on the web, right? For any entrepreneurs that's looking to get the pitch deck of companies like LinkedIn, and uh, there's tons of those out there. So it's very instructive to understand what they do. And the VCs who are financing those, those, those enterprises, they, they really write a lot of blogs to explain what they're looking for at every stage of developing a business. And those are very useful for people to put, prepare themselves for asking for capital. It, the, the web is full of everything people need to be able to prepare themselves. And the worst thing that people could do is not read these things because the odds of raising capital without proper pre preparation are close to zero. Do you think that this is something that anybody can do? 
if they read the resources, they study the pitch decks, and they have an idea that they genuinely believe can change an industry, do you think just about anybody could do this? It's a good question. It, it takes a certain attitude. You have to be scrappy because you have to accept to move forward even when you don't know everything. You've got to be resilient because you're going to face a lot of rejection. You have to be uh, physically somewhat energetic because there's a lot of ups and downs uh, in doing this. So you've got to be able to stand up and keep on going. So if you have those traits of personalities, yes, you can, everybody can do it for sure. But then again, you gotta be somewhat lucky, right? Why? Because if, if you unfortunately wanna do something at the same time as somebody else who's very successful, it's gonna be hard to win, right? There was only one Facebook when it started and uh, and right now there's you know there's one clubhouse there's one snapchat and yes you know it, it's you have to be somewhat original so right. it also it also takes the patience to to do the homeworks if if people want to start a business they really have to understand what they're trying to do and they really need to 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 also try to be flexible and Going back to what I referred to earlier on, uh, I don't know if any business that's exactly what it was on day one of being founded. It's called a pivot, but it's, there's always a pivot, always, always a pivot. And it's the only way to succeed. So if you got to be ready to understand that and change course as you go. With Lander, like, do you, do you have any competitors? Because when I think of, like, to be honest, like maybe it's just because I'm from Montreal, but I spent most of my career abroad in the UK and in New York City. And then when I moved back here, it's funny because I kind of barely knew the music industry here. But oddly enough, whenever I would think about like mixing and mastering software, I would always just think of Lander. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a very, uh, there's a very rich competitive environment in music technology. And, uh, and so for specifically for what we, we did when we started, we came in and competed somewhat with human master engineers. We also competed with a piece of software that needed uh, people to use it. And it was a bit complicated tool called Ozone by a company called Isotope. Um, but since uh, we started offering that in 2014, there has to be like a dozen copycats who are trying to imitate how we do things, although they haven't invested as much into the science that we patented. They, they, they copy our website and the flow so that it feels like uh, you're getting the same thing as on Lander. But Dolby last year has also came up with a version of, uh, of that competes with Lander that they embedded within the SoundCloud website. So as you can see, it's starting to be bigger business. And ourselves, since we started that, we've expanded and we've got six additional product lines now. And we went into each of these product lines knowing that where we were competing with other players. I mean, we even have a video chat for musicians so that they can stream their music as they play. Right. So there we're competing with zoom. Right. And other players like that, but for some specific areas of the business. So it's uh, it's uh, there's always going to be competition. That's why you need to be precise on where do you fit uh, relative to your competitors for certain segments of the market. Always, always very important to remember that there's a, there's a big diversity of human beings with different backgrounds and different expertise and, and different sophistication levels. 
and they all react differently to offerings. So you have to understand. So on the same category, why would people use one thing versus another, right? You're using Zoom here for this uh, recording, but you could have been using Microsoft Teams. Well, right. Microsoft Teams oftentimes would be used by people in an organization who are already subscribers to Microsoft. So freelancers don't use Teams as much, right? Mm -hmm. And if, if you're a student, oftentimes you'll be using uh, Google Meet because there's a free tier to it and, and so on, right? So we, we come from multiple angles of the equation. I mean, recently I, I was uh, reading about ProtonMail that's finding a niche in the fact that it's protecting, the, it's encrypting everything. So people who are really concerned about privacy, well, they're creating accounts on ProtonMail, even if Gmail has been there forever. And before that, there was Hotmail. Right now in the music technology space, are there any markets that you see are untapped or where do you really see the future of this industry going? We're all working to, uh, to simplify the music creation process. We're making it so, so that people, uh, you know, in, in the same way that people love taking photos using their phone because it's not complicated and the reward is great, right? You've got something to remember, you can share and so forth. Um, we, we all, the, the active players in the music tech industry, we're all trying to create software and content that enable people to become creators so that there's more and more creators. So that the outcome of that is music that is of good quality. Whether people make money out of that or not, this is not really what we're after because it's going to happen anyway, right? Mm -hmm. so, uh, so, but we're really trying to make it easily uh, accessible and feasible for people to make music in the same way that you take a guitar and you learn to play the guitar, right? You go back at it, it's fun because, oh, here I am capable of playing some melodies. And the reward is, is being into the music itself. So when you do that with using music technology, you don't have the instrument in your heads, in your hands, but you have your computer and, you, and you're basically recreating the same sounds using loops, using samples and so forth. And you're producing music like modern music is mostly made nowadays. So you become a creator. So we're, our goal is to get as many people as possible to see themselves as creators so that they create more music not because it's going to grow the size of the music industry, but because the same thing with complicity. When you create something, you share it. When you share something, it reveals yourself. Other people are responding to that, are saying, hey, I like it and I don't. And it creates relationships and, and meaning between two people or multiple people. So we see music as, as basically something fantastic it's relaxing, it's, it's inspiring for oneself, but it's also a great way to communicate with others uh, using other things than just like uh, rational words. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so, so that's, that's really where music technology is going. It's really to enable more people and to facilitate the music production process. Yeah, and production is becoming more and more readily publishable on you know, TikTok and Instagram and Facebook and so forth. And what gets published on social media then gets reused by video creators so that this becomes the soundtrack of their video. So you see there's a lot of like mashups of content, audio going to video, back to listeners and so forth. So it's, uh, 
this is, I'd say music is really turning into social, social music creation. So what is a typical day like for you from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed? The first thing I do is really listen to music, uh, have breakfast, uh, read the paper, then go into my emails. And after that, depending on the day of the week, uh, early in the week, typically I have management meetings and, and product meetings, reviewing the different products that we're trying to do and so forth. And later in the week, that's where I do partnership discussions and business uh, development discussions and where I also take time to sometimes create pitch decks to approach certain companies to propose partnerships and so forth. Uh, so, and at the end of every week on Fridays, our products have the cycles of three weeks of development. So there's a sprint that lasts three weeks. So every week there's about two demos of what's been developed that is showcased to all the employees in the company. So I attend those on Fridays and, uh, and that's pretty much it, but it's all about finding how to grow faster, how to, where to invest. Uh, and because we're becoming bigger now, uh, what could be good companies for acquisition purposes. Pascal, thanks so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be on the podcast. Listen, it was a real pleasure and I'm looking forward to, uh, to listen to you uh, with the final result. Good stuff. Take care. Hey everyone, just wanted to check back in and shout all of you out who are taking the time to check out the podcast, especially those of you who have been sharing it with your friends and writing me such nice messages on Apple Podcasts, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. If you or someone you know has an awesome story that you think should be shared with the world, feel free to write me directly on any of our socials at The First Act Podcast. Until then, stay safe.